2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Loose Units Origins. I'm Paul Verhoeven, and last week on Loose Units Origins, my dad, John Verhoeven, told part one of, I don't think we've ever done a cliffhanger before, Dad, and people flipped out.
3: They did. They flipped right out, and there was so much. Um,
2: people were literally,
3: oh look, they were writing in frenetically, mm. w- wanting to know just,
2: anyway, yeah, generate a lot of interest, and right, rightfully so, Paul. Well, it's a horrifying case, but the thing is, it's it's basically it's it's one of the last big cases of your career in general duties, mm. and it's right up the pointy end of the book, which means we're basically right near the end of this season of loose units. It's been the biggest season of loose units ever. Mm. It has, I mean, God, it's been going on a long time, and this is sort of we're approaching the finale, and part two of the which is today. You'll be able to hear how this story actually pans out. But just as a bit of a recap for people, uh, previously on Loose Units Origins, Dad, last week on the show, you told the story of how yourself and Julian got a call from the fire brigade, correct?
3: Mm, yeah, about a um about a, a bucket yep. that a neighbour had called in Triple O fire brigade. Mm. Small fire in the front yard of a house. Um, fire is rock up. And I guess for them it was a... Well, what I would describe having been a firefighter for ten years, if I was confronted, because they go to these jobs under siren, and the adrenaline is, you know, <laughs> starting to pump through their their wee veins. What? And I'm just describing the fireys. They're going
2: to the job. Every job they go to is under siren. But don't just don't people on if you're in the fire brigade and you mm-hmm. were in the fire brigade. I was. Do you generally know what you're heading towards, or are you just, all right, there's a siren, you're in the truck, and it's kind of a lucky dip? How much do you know heading in? Only the,
3: a bit of information. Um, small fire, right. front yard, house in Mossman, and, you know, we we sort of let the cat out of the bag last week by actually,
2: you know, naming the street. Yes. So, people who work at uh, Mossman Fire Station would know this street because it would be in there. In their kind of jurisdiction, right? Yeah, yeah. in their
3: patrol. Mm.
2: So they rock up and,
3: you know, they may have seen a little bit of smoke sort of issuing. That's the term fireys use, Mm -hmm. smoke issuing. Also remember, listeners, that fireys, if ever you see a fire engine sort of heading to a job under siren, quite often, at least when I was in the job, fireys would stick their heads out the window and use their olfactory centre,
2: Hang on. You're talking about dogs. That's what dogs no, do.
3: No, Paul. Paul, fireys use their noses to smell.
2: Why you... Because I've Paul. seen countless fire engines roaring oh. past and at no point have I seen a fiery <laughs> with his nose out going, that way, lads. No, 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 north, northwest. Oh, Jesus, Paul. If I was... Paul,
3: you are prone to exaggeration, okay? You, you obviously take after your mother. And firemen don't... Stick their when you said stick their noses out. Mm-hmm. I mean that'd be weird, wouldn't it? And just, the, just noses, the nose? Noses, yeah, so it's no, they don't do that. And and if you did see just noses sticking out of a fire engine, uh-huh. well, you wouldn't see it because noses are fairly small. But generally, you'll stick your head out the fire engine. At least, well, I used to.
2: <laughs> I think what's happening here is you were the one fire who stuck his head out the window. Uh, and you've just regarded it as normal practice since then, because I've never seen it. I would love to hear from uh, any fireys as to whether they stick their heads out the window and sniff their way towards the fire. But
3: Paul, what they're doing
2: is... Well, Mm -hmm. you tell me why you think that they would do it. Well, look, by dog dog logic, right? Apparently when dogs, because they have such finely tuned, densely clustered uh, olfactory kind of centres, that when they stick their heads out of a car... All the kind of things flying towards them. It's like drugs for a dog. They basically mm. get a contact high. So is that mm. what
3: you're doing? Are you No, you're, what you're doing is you're trying to get a sense of the the type of fire you're going to. If it's a chemical fire, mm, okay. you're gonna smell some pretty toxic fumes. And I think or or if it's a house alight, that that has a unique smell. When or if it's a Dutch oven, you can smell the farts. When I wake up in the mornings in Sydney,
2: mm-hmm.
3: I can smell if there's been a house fire nearby. Yeah. Long since extinguished. Yes, I can say to Christine, there was a house fire close by. Right, and what? I, what? But that's not. I mean, and I I'm, can tell if it's a motor vehicle fire. I can tell. I mean, fire is learn. I mean, I've got a bloody good sense of smell.
2: I guess what I'm trying to say
3: is, like, how useful is that in the moment? It's very useful because it starts to prepare you mentally for what type of situation you're going to go in. And can I just say at this juncture, Paul, that I'm sure the listeners at this point are going, please, for fuck's sake, get on with part two of
2: the witch story. Well, this is kind of relevant because what we're trying to do is basically paint a picture of the... I'm trying to figure out what the firefighters thought they were arriving to because you said that they had adrenaline flowing through their, as you said, wee veins. And I was curious mm. as to why they'd be so excited if they knew that there was a, it was just a bin fire. And you're saying they wouldn't know necessarily.
3: Not necessarily, depending right. on how much information the neighbour had given them. But, you know, these fires rock up. It's a small fire. Mm-hmm. To them, it's fairly inconsequential. Little did they know that behind, you know, this... this sort of burnt clothing in a bucket, is, is this extraordinary story. And while I was running on Bondi Beach this morning, mm-hmm. I was thinking to myself all these years on that this story that we are relating, Paul, in terms of stories throughout the world, is one of the... It makes you realise that out there in the suburbs, across Australia and across the world are some pretty bizarre things happening as we listen to this podcast. There are people out there doing some extraordinary things. Um, And people sort of talk about... There are people out there in this world practicing the dark arts. And it's quite fascinating. And I'm sure that a lot of these people maintain anonymity but as this story unfolds through a set of extraordinary circumstances which ultimately reveal something something frightening would you not agree
2: yeah and i think it's it's been really interesting kind of hearing people's reactions to this story because this story is in the book it's been on the live shows We've covered the fact that the firefighters were probably pretty thrilled when they got there. Um, they get there and there's a bin on fire. You and Julian head up. You head inside and you spot those weird kind of burned silhouettes on the wall. So it's clear that something really terrible has happened. Mm-hmm. You head outside after... So you haven't done your proper inspection at this point because no. you're about to finish your shift and you don't want the Ds to get this. So you head outside. You call across and your kind of senior... Um, the senior man in charge gives you and Julian permission for overtime, which gives you carte blanche to go back into this house. Now, what time is it at this point?
3: Mm. It would have been around about
2: 3 p.m. Right. Okay. Uh, it's a very quiet street. Very quiet. Yeah. But, I mean, you. okay, so I'm just trying to figure out, you guys are heading back into this house. You are clearly quite excited about having a chance to close this case off. But I'm also guessing that you, I mean, going back in there is going to be pretty horrible. So can you talk us through... Exactly what happened when you headed back into the house. Walk us through in forensic detail what you saw and and what you uh, deduced as you went through the house. Okay,
3: so it was very quiet. The street was... There was no traffic. Mm -hmm. That telecom guy had very kindly lent us that phone. Yeah. Someone wrote in saying that... uh, He said, Hi, John, if you're interested, the phone you mentioned in the burning of a witch... That the telecom worker used is called a Batinsky test phone, mm-hmm. also known as a butt phone. Huh. We use them in the Navy to test the phone lines when we come into port. Now so that's sort of this from this guy that so people are out there really, really sort of getting involved in this story.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And if we hadn't have had that weird moment in time where the telecom guy was actually sort of in the street, and it was a bit of lateral thinking. When we asked him, could he patch us through yeah. uh, to to Mossman Police Station? It was just a set of circumstances. It's a quiet time. I'm working with my absolute number one best friend. Um, he and I were we were as thick as thieves. We, we 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 were super keen, and this case was going to sort of reveal itself in its entirety and we were very blessed we got permission to carry on because normally in these situations you'd have another crew come in uh, because the the, the police department doesn't like spending money on overtime Mm -hmm. and you know it makes sense but from a continuity perspective the fact that uh ron walsh the supervising sergeant at mossman he he had a sense that um, Julian and I were onto something. Uh, and when we... It was like everything was laid out for us. We There was no pressure anymore. We knew that there were... Thank God there were no other police because we'd we played it right down because VKG had no idea. Because if VKG had got involved... It would have been a shitstorm. They would have blocked off the street. There would have been detectives from Arsehole to Breakfast, and we would have been just told to go home, and you and I wouldn't be sitting here today. Yes, exactly. So we went back into the house. I've already explained to the listeners about the, the literally hundreds of bottles with, with some type of preserving liquid, and inside all these bottles were specimens. Frogs, um, birds—they were actually eggs, but inside the eggs, like they were like half eggs, with with sort of unborn, you know, chickens.
2: Whereabouts in the house were
3: these jars? All in the kitchen, right? Okay. They basically formed a wall of, sort of like a wall of, kind of ingredients Um, but none of these ingredients were edible but Julian and I very quickly got a sense that these belonged to someone that was involved and practiced the dark arts Mm. there's no doubt about that and there was a, a feeling of kind of it was a creepy feeling It was a sad feeling. It was a bad feeling. It was... I mean, I kind of wanted to be there and I also wanted, paradoxically, Mm -hmm. to not be there. Right. I almost wished that I hadn't responded
2: or someone else had responded. How far back uh, into the house were you at this point? You're right near the edge, aren't you? You're right at the front of the house. At the front, yeah. Yeah, okay. And...
3: There was a lounge, sort of dining area. Mm. I remember the timber floor. Have you ever been into a house, housepole where they've got timber floors but they've never ever been polished? They're kind of dusty and raw timber. Um, they're kind of they're very difficult to keep clean because they're kind of porous. Mm-hmm. And I explained to you and the listeners about these um, sort of effigies, these silhouettes on the wall that headed down towards the bedroom. Yeah. Now, the bedroom was at the... If you're looking at the house, the bedroom was down a hallway to the left, all the way to the very end of the house. Mm-hmm. It's a single-story house, um, basically timber home. Um, it was very neat. You know, it was very tidy. Yeah. The occupant or occupants because we didn't know anything about the occupant or occupants of the house at this point in time. But we decided to follow the, the sort of harrowing demonic sort of images that were frozen in time down one side of the wall. The silhouettes, yeah. The silhouettes. Mm. And there was a lot of sort of carbon sort of black sort of soot um, we were very, very careful because we believed what we had actually stumbled upon possibly was a crime scene. Right. And because we knew the fire brigade hadn't gone into the house and we were the first people to go in, what's to say based on what we saw that it was possible that there was a person or
2: persons still mm. in the house? So you still, you thought maybe there were people in the house? Is yeah, that quite right? possibly. Jesus. Well, who's to say
3: that, you know, I mean, there, there might not be a body or two right, in the house. And what we were starting to see started to freak us out. And I remember that Julian and I basically kind of walked very close to each other, <laughs> as though to almost protect us.
2: So you guys were kind of clustered together? out of how freaky was this house at this point you've just walked into this house um at this point are you wondering why the clothes were burning in the driveway and are you starting to piece together and wonder okay there's this person who's clearly i mean the silhouettes like what kind of a picture are you building up
3: um something that we'd never encountered before something that i guess this was one of those cases where julian and i and we knew each other really well Mm -hmm. like we were we were really good, you know, partners. Um, we 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 understood each other. We yeah. were absolutely on the nail. It was though this this case was handed to us, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we were both sort of relatively junior uniform police, and we were basically getting involved in something that you know kind of really tested our metal, and. I remember, I'm actually not sure whether Julian actually had his hand on my shoulder, but we were basically sort of walking sort of tentatively and quite nervously. And at the end of the corridor was a double bed. I can still remember to this point while I'm talking to you here Paul mm. I can remember the material like the bedspread and it was a thick decorative bedspread that was in my my opinion it was probably from the 1950s and it was very dense very heavy and it was it covered this bed it was a, a double bed but not not a queen sized bed mm. And the timber on the floor in the house sort of maintained that continuity throughout. There were no rooms that were carpeted. The entire house was unpolished timber floorboards, except for the bathroom that was tiled. Now, I'll come to the bathroom a bit later. Mm -hmm. We go into this bedroom. We stand at the entrance to the bedroom, and I saw something that was so bizarre but i kind of knew what it was but i also because you're thinking about the these these silhouettes going down the hallway Mm. now we couldn't tell at that stage what direction these silhouettes like the person or persons that had made these silhouettes we didn't even know look There wasn't a lot we knew at that stage, but we didn't know whether they perhaps had been running down the hallway towards the bedroom Mm -hmm. or from the bedroom towards the kitchen, okay? So we were sort of unravelling things as we went along and then I remember looking down at the floor and there were two quite deep Charcoal, burn, scorch marks on the floorboards. And they were perfectly shaped. And my deduction, looking at these mirror image, sort of incised, black, burnt markings, slightly recessed Mm -hmm. into the timber, I thought they represented a person's buttocks. But I realised as did Julian, that taking into consideration the burn marks on the walls, we realised that, in our opinion, there was at least one person on fire. And the heat generated must have been so intense to have burnt their buttocks. Can you imagine being on fire and then sitting on a timber floor? And look, at it's just its so terrible to think about. And then there was a fire trail that led up the, the side of the bed like a black line, it travelled into the middle of the bed and in the middle of the bed was a large knife that was serrated, finely serrated. There was an afternoon light coming through a window and it was literally sort of illuminating the bed. But more importantly, the shaft of light hit this knife. And when I looked at the blade, I could clearly see about three inches up the the blade was what I would describe as a like a shimmering mucousy fluid that clearly stopped three inches up. So uh, again, looking at this particular knife, I would describe a little bit like and I don't know whether people, many people, many listeners would have done this, but, I mean, have you ever checked
2: for oil, Paul, in a car? So what you're saying is that there was like an oil level up, like somewhere up the blade, but it was blood, clearly, right? Well, kind of a sort of a,
3: yeah, it wasn't actually sort of very much standout blood. It was more a sort of a, like a sort of a slimy, mucousy touch of blood, kind of weird viscera is i think the word you're okay, looking for yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah and 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 you could measure it quite clearly and you could right. see that it, it it was like like dipping something into a fluid and then taking it out you could see so, the line
2: so you've got a and is there blood on the bed as well mm, not, not 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 a lot of blood but
3: No, that 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 comes a little bit later the 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 blood um so this is all all so as the listeners are listening to this and coming along on this journey, yeah. at this point, listeners, you have experienced everything I have experienced, and Julian, up to this point.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
2: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So
3: based on what we've seen so far, you begin to deduce, hypothesize, imagine certain scenarios. And then Julian stayed in that room and he began to look for I guess evidence, um, sort of, so we could sort of help create this story, bearing in mind that potentially it was still a crime scene, or a crime scene, or something. Obviously, something terrible had happened here. And then I went out of the bedroom and I went into the bathroom. And in the bathroom, it was a 1950s, unrestored original bathroom, and Again, it was very, very, very neat. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror. I'm in uniform, it's a hot summer's day, um, and I'm walking towards the, the sink. And then I, I look to my right, and I look down into the bath, There was no shower, just a bath. And I could see, again, there's this recurring theme of charcoal, carbon, soot. Uh, But there were all these sort of, like almost, I'm not going to say claw marks, because that would indicate sort of scribing one's fingernails into the enamel. But there were sort of these handprints throughout the bathtub. But they were sort of they'd they'd sort of start at the top of the bath around the rim, and you could see clearly that someone or something, well, obviously human, had sort of grasped onto this side of the bath, and the feeling that I had, without sort of jumping too far ahead into the story, was that I had the impression that someone. Had definitely been on fire mm-hmm. and had got into the bath because the pain must have been so bad, bearing in mind at a certain point with severe burn, if it if it can burn a lot. You remember that, Paul, pain from burning, it's not the burnt part of the skin, it's the part that's unburnt. It's the nerves. That are experiencing this. Quite frankly, I think it's possibly the worst pain you can experience. Well, certainly that I've ever experienced. And and everyone's burnt themselves in a minor way, but this this clearly was some person um, that had needed to extinguish the flame. And so I'm looking down. I'm getting starting to get a sense of what's happening. And then I look into the sink. And w- when I looked into the sink. I saw something that was so depressing and disconcerting and horrific and shocking that I literally thought, this can't be real. And what I saw were teeth, quite a few teeth. The teeth were wretched and bloody and black and there was... There was sputum and saliva of every colour in the in the, the kaleidoscope of the spectrum of colour, like a colour wheel of just debauchery. And I'm looking into this sink, and to either side of the sink, aside from the teeth and the blood and the phlegm, and the and, and there was burnt hair were were handprints. And I began to realise that at least one person but I couldn't figure out the order of operation I couldn't figure out whether they'd gone to the sink and basically been on fire Mm. or they would and then kind of I mean can you imagine they've come into what's undeniable is that they've come into this room and at some point they may well have looked into the mirror and you can only imagine what a terrible terrible vision of hell you'd see seeing yourself it's 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 horrendous but as to whether it was the sink first and then the bath or the bath in the sink I don't know and there was the bedroom of course my gut feeling is the bedroom was first then bathroom we searched that house Julian and I were clearly totally utterly disturbed and unraveled Mm -hmm. and we had a big decision to make then we decided we 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 thought shit like do we keep this under wraps and you know do we keep keep it quiet or or do we just bring in the big guns and we were just about to sort of come up with some sort of you know sort of plan as to we realized that it was time to sort of start to bring in some more help. Mm-hmm. But we were kind of toing and froing and we were just you know, oh and we we went back to the um to the police car and as we sat down in the car trying to sort of um consider our our position, mm-hmm. we got a message from VKG and this is believe it or not, listeners. Where the story gets really interesting like, if you can imagine that if, if you're thinking that things are pretty amazing now this message that came over the police radio vkg by then it's around about getting near 4 p.m on a weekday in sydney in mossman julian and i are sitting because it's bloody hot we're sitting in the uh in the car doors open and we're just sort of, sort of composing ourselves. We get the message, car six ten. Could you please attend the Royal North Shore Hospital? Uh, and that was a fairly non-specific um, call, but we found out later that the the fantastic sergeant at Mossman. Had put a cryptic call over VKG for us to respond to go to Royal North Shore Hospital. Now that Royal North Shore Hospital, listeners, was was sort of on the border of Sixth um, Division and Twenty Five Division, which was Chatswood. So it was kind of on the cusp of you know being out of our area. Mm-hmm. So we went back, made sure the house was secure. And then Julian and I had another look at the bucket. And we realized, based on everything we'd now seen, Mm -hmm. in our opinion, someone had been on fire. In the bedroom, right? In the bedroom and running around the house and trying to put themselves out. And their clothes were literally, there was virtually nothing left of their clothing. Okay. Just black cloth that the fire brigade... So this person had somehow or other managed to get their clothes or what was left of them and weirdly put them in a bucket. Right. As they were still smoldering. And then that's all we knew. So we make our way to Royal North Shore Hospital, which is around about from... Somerset Street, Mossman, to Royal North Shore, I would say, eight kilometres. And it's super busy. You know, it's, it's, it's a super busy main road to get there, particularly that time of day, like mega busy. We go into the car park of the Royal North Shore Hospital and go in through the emergency, and we were given the name of a particular nurse. I remember her name. She was working at this station. Now, from where she was working in emergency, as Julian and I walked in, they had these automatic doors and they opened. And you'd see a nurse or two look up and they saw, because the police are very common, you know, they have a very strong presence at hospitals for lots and lots of reasons. Mm. So Julian and I started walking towards this nursing station and a particular nurse comes out from behind the counter she is clearly shaken. She's distressed. And she relays a story to Julian and myself that to this day, I remember her words, she's, she, she sort of heard and was aware that the, the automatic doors opened. And she looked up. As the woman got closer, she realized in fact that it was a female, naked, her entire body black. All hair gone. Pubic and head hair. She was completely black. Burnt almost beyond recognition. As she's walking towards the nursing station, bits of her body were literally dropping off on the floor. The hospital, realising what a shocking, unbelievable, terrible state this woman was in, they rushed her. Into intensive care. So when Julian and I arrive at the hospital, we are taken into intensive care. And most intensive care units are very kind of open in a way, but we were taken into a room and it was a special room, like it was just a one off private room. And we're led into this room, and to the right in the corner, was an elderly gentleman, silent, distressed, but in a calm way. And he is looking over towards the bed. Now, the first thing that I noticed was that this particular person that was in this bed that we had not seen up until this point was covered in a silver metal blanket. And that indicated to me that this person was terribly, terribly burnt. And Julie and I are standing there. I'm kind of thinking, who is this elderly gentleman? I remember seeing her body because the nursing staff raised the blanket, but they did it in such a way that the father couldn't see. Right. Julie and I are standing there, and this woman was conscious. And I remember her eyes were open, and they were sort of red Like they were bloodshot and they were just, it was so terrible to look at. And I'll never forget, Paul, that I remember seeing the bottom of her feet because they indicated that that was the only part of her body that was not burnt. Right. Just the bottom of her feet. Everything else was completely fucked. She'd literally, look, she was just, I've never seen anything like it. She was, and Julian and I, began to piece together this incredible story of what had happened and here she was this person that we this is that this is the culmination of of this time we'd spent at this place and she was lying there and i can say to the listeners now that she was 39 years of age and we walked over to the gentleman and this is so bizarre paul he was the father of the girl, and but incredibly so, he actually told us that he was or had been Mm -hmm. a police officer in the New South Wales Police Force, retired. How they got in touch with him is just beyond me. But all of a sudden, in the most terrible, terrible sort of final death throw, the woman slightly sat up and she stared at us and her eyes just started bulging and she said to us these words that have obviously stayed with me for, well, until now. And she looked at us and she said three words, quite lucidly. She said, I've been cleansed. And she just slouched back and died in front of us. So Julie and myself and the father and the staff witnessed her last words and she died. And that was pretty, pretty bad. But, listeners, get ready for this. as if this is not enough to totally freak you out, so Paul, Julian and I we we were heading downstairs. We walked, we said goodbye to we got a statement off the nurse. We walked out into the the car park which was vast. And Julian and I had one searing question in our minds. And would you care to guess what that is? The the biggest most bizarre part, not the most bizarre part of the story, but an an extraordinary part of this story that I'm about to relay to everyone Mm -hmm. is, because we all know, I must just share something with you, Paul. Okay. Very, very, very importantly. You know the knife on the bed? Yeah. When we were with her and they pulled the space blanket back, what did we see around her heart? her chest we saw a stab wound self-inflicted and she had driven this knife deep into her her chest she'd also stabbed herself three times in the abdomen there were four stab wounds self-inflicted
2: right so she'd stabbed herself through the heart and the abdomen several times what had she done then
3: paul the ultimate ultimate Part of this story mm-hmm. is how did she get to the hospital right how on earth could she have got there and then we made the most gruesome discovery we got onto vkg we gave them her details they gave us um all her details of a car that she owned which was a 1960s Wolseley motor car it's a fairly unusual car it's sort of a Kind of a today it would be regarded as a collector's car, mm-hmm. and we started walking into the car park of the Royal Northshire Hospital, and there would have been at least two hundred cars. We searched every single car. We finally came across her, Walsley. The door, the driver's door, was slightly ajar. I'll never forget this. This is so fucked up. We looked inside the car, and. To our amazement and horror, but also our awe was—I uh, don't know how to put it—was sort of were, were bodily fluids, including uh, faecal matter, that had stuck. Shit, my left arm starting to shake. Oh god! Uh, she'd basically look. She was—I don't know how she did it, but she managed. There were there were. There were signs of her epidermis, her palm prints, were, were stuck to her steering wheel. Okay, and she had this, like a lamb's wool, seat cover for just the driver's seat, mm-hmm. and it was, it was just caked in various bodily fluids. So she somehow or other, driven eight kilometres on a busy road. Did she stop at red traffic lights? I don't know. Did anyone look at her? as she pulled up next to them and think, what the fuck is that? I mean, it's like a a moving, living horror story. And for us to have discovered that proved beyond a reasonable doubt that she'd driven herself to the hospital. She'd Uh left the motor vehicle. She'd walked in through the electronic doors. Mm -hmm. She walked, hunched over, bits of her literally falling off on the floor. She made it all that way. Her father came. Julian and I were in the room when she uttered those three words in my opinion in julian's opinion she had been possessed and to rid herself this is just an opinion listeners but i think it points to the human mind wanting to sort of get get, that thing out of her get it out of her and she she tried everything and um Oh boy, that's a tough story to tell. <laughs> um, gives me the creeps. But um that that that, dear dear friends, dear listeners, dear Paul, is um is an extraordinary story.
0: It's and horrifying. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely-
3: and it's true. So you know, if um if someone ever doubted the veracity of that story, the, the occurrence book entry that I typed is on record somewhere mm. in some uh some dusty cabinet, as are all police records, because uh, Julian and I, we had to wrap the case up. Yeah. And we also had to prepare a report to the coroner. Jesus. That's so,
2: um, that's pretty harrowing, Dad. Mm. Um, well, okay, I think we all need a bit of a bit of a breather after that. So I'm more than happy to kind of call it there. That was, um, I mean, if your arm's shaking and I'm feeling a little bit, A little bit odd, so I think I need to kind of process that story. Uh, If listeners have any kind of uh, thoughts on that, you can head across to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash loose units and weigh in. Uh, We will be back at the end of the week for Loose Ends. So uh, if we have any correspondence about this that we want to talk about, we'll kind of do it on the show then. But, um, I think dad and I are a little bit winded. So we're going to go off and have a strong cup of tea and have a think about it. But dad, I just want to say thank you for sharing that story. And I'm glad we spent two weeks doing it. I'm really glad we kind of took the time to, you know, unpack it properly because I feel like it, um, I mean, part two answers a lot of questions. It also asks a lot, but the questions it's asking are fairly big existential ones. So let's stew on those over the coming week. But Mm, brilliant. yeah, thanks dad. And, um, Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Loose Units Origins. Stay safe, and we will talk to you at the end of the week for Loose Units, Loose Ends. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods